The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, Moses uh, accounts this, uh, gives this account of how he would spend time in the Lord's presence. And when he would come down from the mountain, his face would be shining because he had spent time talking with God. They could see that he spent time talking with God. And then he had to cover his face with a veil because it was so bright. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38, Moses sets up a tent in which to worship God. A cloud covered the tent, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord's presence was so wondrous that Moses was not able to enter the space because the cloud of God's presence and the glory of the Lord dwelled there. He couldn't even go in the space. The cloud would rest on it by day. Fire would rest on it by night. So all of God's people could see it, and yet they couldn't enter it. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. The people are bringing special artifacts to the temple. They're lifting up a praise to the Lord. They're singing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then after that, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, very similar to our earlier passage. The priest could not even stand to minister because the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Very similar things take place. You'll hear similar language. Fire comes down from heaven. The glory of the Lord fills the temple. The priests were unable to enter the house because of God's presence. When Israel saw the fire and the glory, they bowed down on the ground on their faces and worshiped and gave thanks to God. Now, how wondrous and spectacular are these occurrences of God's presence coming on the tent and then the temple, the place of God's presence? And there's so many more accounts. Now, just imagine with me for a moment that this holy, wondrous, amazing, majestic, mighty God who, who came and dwelt on the temple and people couldn't even enter his presence. Imagine if this God came and dwelled in you, in your small mortal body, what would that even be like? We've already hit four places in the Old Testament just in these first couple of minutes. Trevor has always said, Trevor's been kind of helping me hone my preaching skills over the last uh, couple of years, and obviously I have a, a long way to go and, and hope to grow, but he, he's always said, like, maybe just choose one or two other places other than the main text of Scripture to go into just so people can follow along and all of that, but I believe in you guys tonight. I am believing in you tonight, all right? Trevor's with kids. He doesn't know what's going on in here, and so I'm going to preach the way I think the Lord, the Spirit, has led me to preach tonight. So, I'm asking you to be with me. What we are about to look at is breathtakingly astonishing and beautiful. God's sovereign hand just fills everything that we're going to talk about. So I want us to take a look at two places near the beginning of the Bible. So you can you know, almost close your Bible, and then we're going to open it back up just a few pages in to what Moses wrote that's vital for the context of our passage tonight. The first one is Genesis 
chapter 11. So the first book in the Bible, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And then the second passage we're going to look at, I'm not going to read through that one, but we will be able to turn there if you want, is Leviticus chapter 23. Everybody's favorite book. You know, if you start a Bible reading plan through a year, Genesis, Exodus, you know, it's kind of hard. And then we just breeze right through Leviticus. It's just filled with easy, simple, clear reading. That is a joke. Um, All of us have at some point probably stopped our Bible in a year plan in Leviticus. And so that's where we're going to go tonight. We're going to look at Jewish festivals and celebrations. It's the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. One thing to note as you turn to Genesis 11 and Leviticus 23, the fulfillment of God's promises, especially in the Old Testament, are very important to the author of Acts, Luke, especially at this hinge point in salvific history. We're reading Acts, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, that's this last week and then our next few weeks. In Acts 1, Jesus proclaims, he promises what will happen, and then it does. And then Luke quotes two Davidic psalms, so he sends us back to the Old Testament. And then Acts chapter 2, our passage tonight, we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel, we're going to talk about these Jewish festivals in Leviticus 23, and I promise you, we could have spent two hours in here tonight just talking about the Old Testament, and then for you know an hour and a half, and then we get to Acts chapter 2, there's so much in there. And then the passage that Trevor's going to preach on next week, there's direct quotations from Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. So we want to invest in the Old Testament. It's it's the scriptures that Jesus, that Luke, that Paul knew and read. And so much of what they say is dictated by what has come before them. So let's read Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9. And we're just going to make a point of some language here. And then I want us to remember the language. And we're going to come back to it. Now the whole earth had one language, one language, and the same words. There are 7,100 languages today, 7,100 languages today. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So there's one language and there's one people. I mean, how mind-blowing is that? 7,100 languages exist today. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So these people are wanting to build a name for themselves by building a city and a tower that would reach to the highest of heavens and they didn't want to be dispersed over the earth. Verse 5 is almost just this great irony. The Lord came down. They were wanting to build up to heaven. The Lord almost laughs. He has to come down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So he sees this city, he sees this tower, he's almost laughing, he's having to come down from heaven to even see what it looks like. And the Lord said, this is a reminder of kind of what we found in those first couple of verses, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7, Come, let us go down, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So let us, there's this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit that saw what was happening, agreed to go down and confused 
their language. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. The triune God disperses them. They were all united. There was one people, one language. Now they're dispersed. Verse 9. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord then there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So I have a, a brief kind of summary, uh, should be on the screen behind me, of some of the highlights of what's taken place. And so it kind of concludes, the place is called Babel. It's, uh, it sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. The Lord has confused the language of the earth and he has dispersed the people. So keep this just kind of in the back of your mind as we get back into Acts chapter 2. All right, Leviticus 23. I'm not going to read through this, just going to hit uh, some highlights. There's seven feasts that are taught about in Leviticus uh, 23. I'm going to briefly speak to four of them. In verse 5, it talks about the Passover, so one that, that you guys might know about, that remembers the last plague in Egypt when God passed over the Israelites who put blood on their doorposts. This is Exodus chapter 12. Now in Mark chapter 15 and John chapter 19, we are told that Jesus' crucifixion fell on the day of the preparation. Now the day of the preparation was usually for the Sabbath, the day of rest that would start at Friday night and go into Saturday. But this specific time was for the Passover, the day of the preparation for the Passover. So we're kind of thinking a minute as we read about these feasts, we're thinking about Easter weekend. What has taken place at Easter weekend? So days are generally uh, in kind of Hebrew, ancient Near East culture, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So it starts Friday night and runs to the next day. That's the Sabbath. That's the Passover. It begins at 6 p.m. on Friday night of Jesus' uh, post his crucifixion. Now this Passover happens to be directly tied with Easter. It's a prophetic portrait of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of his people. So we're going to look at three, these three kind of feasts or uh, events that happen right on Easter weekend. Passover is the first. Second, verse 6 in Leviticus chapter 23, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This begins the day after the start of Passover. So in their haste, in leaving Egypt, the Israelites did not have time to leaven, or in layman's term, add yeast to their bread that would make it rise. So the bread didn't rise, so they would eat, they would have a feast of unleavened bread where they would remember the hardships and the freedom God granted. And so they would do this by eating nothing with yeast for seven days. This feast occurs right in the middle of Easter weekend, starting on Saturday night. And this feast of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a portrait of Jesus, our Savior, the one who is totally and completely sinless. He is unleavened to his very core. The third feast in Leviticus chapter 23, as it points to Easter weekend, is the Feast of First Fruits. This is the Sunday after the Sabbath of Passover, verse 11 in Leviticus 23. The first, this is the first harvest feast where they thank and honor God for all that he has provided. Now, this is the same day that Jesus was resurrected, Easter Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, it should be on the screen. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. He's the first of many to be raised to eternal life because of the new covenant found in the blood of Jesus. So these first three kind of feasts are all celebrated Easter weekend, Leviticus 23. Is, it, it was kind of a Jewish-Israelite uh, feast. And then Easter weekend is when they are celebrated and they all point to Jesus. Now the reason we, we talked about all three of these is for the fourth one, which brings us to our passage tonight. Feast of Weeks in verse 15, Leviticus 23. There's seven sets of seven days after the Sabbath, a week of weeks, seven of sevens. This is Pentecost. So the Feast of Weeks, anytime you see Feast of Weeks, that is Pentecost. And Pentecost from, comes from the Greek word Pentecoste, which means 50. If we think of Penta, Pentagon, five-sided figure, Penta being five, so five, zero, 50 days. That is Pentecost, which is our passage tonight next to, which we'll get to here in just a minute. In later Jewish tradition, uh, Pentecost became the day of the giving of the law and the renewal of the covenant. So remembering that God gave Moses the law and remembering that the covenant was, re- was renewed, which is maybe the most important day in Israelite history. So I want us to turn to Acts chapter 2 now, and we're going to look at what I would argue is one of the three most important days in Christian history. We want to keep in mind our Old Testament context. Babel, Genesis 11, and Leviticus 23, knowing that all three of those feasts happened on Easter Sunday, and now we are 50 days later at Pentecost, at the Feast of Weeks. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All right, so Pentecost Verse 5 is going to tell us that the Jews are in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the Feast of Weeks, Leviticus 23. The Feast of Weeks, remembering what God has done and provided in the law, in the covenant. Who is the they in verse 1? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. They harkens back to Acts chapter 1, verse 15 where 120 disciples are waiting based on Jesus' orders that he gave in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to come. And then we get that phrase, all together in one place. Bells should be ringing of Genesis 11 and Babel. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven. Where did it come from? It came from heaven. A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So all of a sudden, a sound from heaven comes down like a mighty rushing wind. Now wind, in this sense, the exact word is used only one other time in the exact same way. Acts chapter 17, verse 25. It should be on the screen. God gives all mankind life and breath. So breath is the word for wind here. And everything. This wind, this word that is used, is used of breath that God gives to man. The very life that we have. The word for Holy Spirit in uh, the New Testament, the other translations in Greek are wind and breath. That's it. 
So God, in verse 2, is coming down from heaven, reminders of Babel, the sound and the wind, the spirit, fill the entire house. Verse 3, and divided tongues, so not one language, divided tongues as of a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So what happens? Tongues of fire came down. Now, there are times in the Bible where the heavenly and earthly realms come together in beautiful ways. Real supernatural events are conveyed with language, with human language, that is just totally limited. So, in many ways, I have no idea what the divided tongues as of fire, what did that look like? Was it, were literal tongues on fire? Were they breathing out fire? Was fire hovering above their head? I'm not 100% sure, but what I do know is that fire is a symbol of divine presence to the Jews. How do we know that? A few passages on the screen from uh, Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush where Moses interacts with God. That is a symbol of God's presence through fire. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, the pillar of fire is what guides Israel by night through the wilderness, showing his presence. Exodus chapter 24, verse 17. There's an all-consuming fire on Mount Sinai. A fire that just covers everything, showing God's presence. And the final one, Exodus chapter 40, verse 38. A fire that hovered over the wilderness tabernacle, showing God's presence. I'm betting when Trevor listens to this sermon this week, he'll, he'll give me some critique on you know, too, many, too many passages, but I hope you guys are, are, are driving there with me, that the fire is God's presence. And in verse 3 in Acts chapter 2, it rests on each one of them. Now we as a church, hopefully as, as the church at Greer Station, hopefully you guys see that we want to do a really good job of emphasizing the corporate nature of belonging to Christ. We are not to be siloed, isolated Christians. We are to belong to each other. We're going to try to picture that at our members meeting here in just a little bit. We're going to vote on people to join our church. We're going to talk about different things that affect each one of us as a corporate body. But under the new covenant, the spirit now rests on each believer individually. The corporate and individual parts of salvation cannot be separated, but there is an emphasis on personal relationship with God for the believer through the Spirit. And so my question here is, is do you have that kind of relationship with God, where the Spirit has come to rest on you, that has radically changed your life? We'll talk more about that here in just a couple minutes. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the presence and the power of the Spirit culminates in verse 4. And we see the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit, really receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised. Now something to note specifically for Acts chapter 2, this is an important passage that's happening directly with these 120 disciples that's maybe a little bit different or a little bit uh, unique with us. These guys are already disciples of Jesus and they're receiving a special giving of the Spirit now that Jesus has been raised. 
but the Spirit has been working previously. Now, how that's different for us today is, is we receive the Spirit at salvation. Just wait for next week. It's going to be mind-blowingly beautiful about what Trevor talks about with the Spirit coming and with people repenting and believing. It's not something we wait around for, even though the Spirit does work in different ways at different times and even before we come to know Christ. Now, in verse 4, these, these other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance, based on verse 6, verse 8, verse 11, which we'll hit here in just a minute, the other tongues mentioned are human languages. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 speaks specifically to tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul seems to know speaking in both tongues of men and tongues of angels. But here, specifically, people are going to hear people speaking in their own language. This would be like somebody who doesn't know English arriving here speaking, and we hear them speaking English, a language that we know. So in these first four verses, there's three signs of God's presence, wind, fire, and inspired speech, these these tongues. Let's go to verse 5. We're going to read 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Verse 5, Jerusalem is filled with Jews from all over. Every nation under heaven. Remember, Babel dispersed people under heaven because they were not able to get to heaven. And now every nation is gathering under heaven. They're celebrating the harvest. They're thinking about the giving of the law and the covenant. But some there are about to celebrate a new harvest, a new covenant, really something new being given. Verses 6 through 11 is a, is a dispersed and multilingual people come together and they were totally blown away. Why? Because they hear the disciples speak in their own native language despite the speakers not knowing their language. Verses 9 through 11, we have all these different people with all these different languages hearing in their own tongues about the greatness and power and glory and might of God. This is a picture of a slight taste of Revelation 7, every tribe, tongue, and nation. When I think about uh, tongues and think about these guys hearing uh, people speak in other tongues and being able to understand it themselves, I kind of think about uh, baby talk or more, more like toddler talk. I don't know, for you guys who have kids, uh, you know that, that you have a certain understanding of your toddler at one, two, three years old that any of the rest of us just have no clue 
what your toddler is saying. If, if Audrey was to, to come in here uh, tonight and she was start talking, I would probably have a good sense. Casey would probably have a slightly better sense because she's with her a little bit more. And you guys might kind of struggle to know what, what words is she saying. Right now she likes saying, you would hear her say, uh-oh, potato. And you'd be like, uh-oh, is there, where, is there a potato somewhere? She's attempting, attempting to say, uh-oh, spaghetti-o. But she says, uh-oh, potato. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know. Maybe you think she's asking for a potato or my potato fell down. And she's just trying to say, uh-oh, spaghetti-o. So we all have this, you know, unique gift to understand uh, kids in differing ways. You know, I know when I didn't have kids, I, I don't know, you know, probably until they're like seven, I'm not really sure what exactly they're saying uh, to me. I'm, I'm starting, my ears getting honed in. My, my kids are, are, are teaching me. But these guys have a unique ability to hear people who shouldn't be able to speak their language speak their language. Verse 12 tells us that the people were amazed, they're perplexed, they're astonished, they're dumbfounded, not knowing what any of this meant. And then verse 13 concludes with people mocking, saying that the people are simply drunk. They're filled with a new wine, something that radically changes a person. There's so much irony in this because they are filled with a new wine. They're filled with something new, with the spirit that has come. Now, previously, we spoke of the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, as remembering what God has done and provided in the law, in the covenant. They're remembering uh, the Passover. They're thanking God. Um, they're remembering back to the Passover, as a celebration they had 50 days prior. And they're thanking God for the harvest that he's given. But now, at Pentecost, and this should be on the screen, we're remembering what God has done and provided in a very similar way. Now, this is 50 days after being saved by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, at Easter. Unlike the lowercase l, lambs, who saved uh, Egypt at the Passover, at Pentecost, 50 days, we're celebrating 50 days after being saved by the blood of the one true, unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus, at Easter weekend. And then we're celebrating the giving of the Spirit, specifically in these verses tonight, and then the giving of the new covenant. And Trevor will talk more about the, more about the Spirit and more about the new covenant next week. We see that the risen Lord Jesus fulfilled the promise that he made in John chapter 15, verse 26, to send a helper, to send the Spirit. John the Baptist also promised in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, the one who comes after me will baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we get a taste of that. We see that in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit has come. So in our passage tonight, we see the Spirit come. We see the people tell of God's mighty works, making Jesus known. God begins to gather a people in order to sin. Pentecost is ultimately for all peoples. The Holy Spirit comes to the Jews in this chapter, in this section that we're reading tonight. He comes to the Samaritans, kind of the next 
ring out the, the kind of the next people group in chapter 8. And then he's going to come to the Gentiles, to people like you and me in chapter 10, verse 44 through 48. All of this fits so well in our summary for Acts. Trevor read it last week. Acts tells us about the unfolding of the Father's Father's sovereign plan to send his spirit, Acts chapter 2, to create and commission a people to make Jesus known. There's a people making God's mighty works known, making Jesus known. Now, Pentecost is ultimately a reversal, or really what I would say, a redemption of Babel, of what took place in Genesis chapter 11. We get this redemption. Now, in Babel, we talked about how there had been one people and one language. But in Acts chapter 2, we have many languages and people, but with understanding instead of confusion. There's not just one language and there's not just one people, but there's many languages and people, and yet they have understanding instead of confusion. In Genesis 11, we saw people wanted to build a name for themselves and not be dispersed. But in Acts chapter 2, the disciples aim to build God's name, telling of his mighty works and making Jesus known. Again, a redemption, a reversal of Babel. In Babel, we saw the Lord come down, and then he disperses, he confuses. At at Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, come down and indwell believers. He came down from heaven. The triune God in in Genesis 11 confused their language and dispersed the people And so our kind of fourth point in thinking about Acts chapter 2, the Spirit filled, unified, and sent His people. The Spirit fills believers. The Spirit worked throughout the Old Testament. He would come down, work in certain ways, but He wouldn't necessarily permanently dwell in His people, in God's people. The Spirit filled, unified, brought together God's people with a purpose And sent them out. Now remember our introduction uh, for tonight. The people of God could not go into the tabernacle and the temple because of the greatness of God's glory. And now this very God that so many hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people could not come into his presence. This very God dwells in you if you are in Christ. This should make us stagger. The eternal, perfect God who created the universe, galaxies, planets, stars, every blade of grass, every piece of sand, every human, every person in this room, that God has made your heart his home. The Holy Spirit has moved into your soul if you are in Christ. Now, if the Spirit has not come into you, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you're not a disciple of Christ, I would beg you to pray. Pray, pray, pray. 
Ask the Lord to save you, to make you new, to wash you clean. And then repent. Turn from your sin. Sin indwells all of us. But God has promised that he will take hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh. Turn from your sin. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. If the Spirit is in you, if you are walking with Christ, live accordingly. Live like the Spirit lives in you. The very God who knew you before the foundations of the world dwells in you. So may we be obedient to him in every way. The question I want to kind of close us on is what does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Now this is I mean, this past week, I literally came up with like dozens of questions that we, that I have that we could talk about for the Holy Spirit. And Trevor and I are going to attempt to do some podcasts over the next couple of weeks to talk about what the Holy Spirit does and many other questions. But I wanted to speak specifically to a few ways tonight that we see in Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, and then also going forward. What does the Holy Spirit do? The first one, empowers mission. Empowers mission. Hopefully I have that in the right order. I do. The Spirit comes, changes, and equips a people. He commissions a people to make Jesus known. This is in Acts. This is going to be throughout Acts. The founding and the building of the church. The Holy Spirit comes into a people to empower mission. What a gift it is to, to have the Harrisons here uh, tonight with us. We're going to get to pray with them, pray over them in the, in the mission prayer. We're going to hear from them in our members meeting. They are empowered to be on mission for the sake of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's amazing. That's wonderful for them in Halifax. But that same exact thing is true of us here today in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your homes. Today I had the really the gift and, and the pleasure to do a funeral, to do a memorial service of, of my neighbor. He was 72. He died a, a month ago and so got to go over and we had a little service at, at, his neighbor, at my neighbor's house and was able to just encourage and, and share the gospel. And that, that's part of me being on mission here in Greer. Holy Spirit empowers mission. Two, the Holy Spirit enables worship of God. What was new with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was that there was no need to come back to some central point, to Jerusalem, to the temple, but rather the Spirit would go to every corner of the earth. Babel has been redeemed. We can be dispersed and worship God accordingly in unity. Jesus, speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23, says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. We can now worship across the globe in any and all places because the Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit fills us. The Holy Spirit is available to anyone and everyone everywhere. The third uh, answer to what does the Holy Spirit do permanently fills believers. The Holy Spirit permanently fills believers. Pentecost at its very core is almost like the incarnation. Jesus came to dwell with humans 
And we get almost another incarnation, the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in humans. God coming to us in our fallen condition is really the heart of the incarnation. The Spirit is a person, not just a force or emotion. The Spirit is with us and in us. Like Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, helper being the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He will never move out, and this should radically change us. The Spirit is with us forever, and He is a guarantee of our salvation. We're going to get clearer and clearer on that in the weeks ahead, especially next week. So there's so many questions that we can't answer on the Spirit tonight. But I do hope through, through the podcast and through our weeks kind of ahead uh, in the Scriptures, we will learn more about the Spirit. And I would love to talk to you, any of the pastors, uh, really anyone around you, community group leader, I would love to talk with you more about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in just a minute, I'm going I'm to pray, and then we're going to uh, spend just a couple of moments uh, reflecting. In our, in our bulletin, we call it prayer and reflection. And we have two questions that are questions for reflection in the bulletin. Now, a major reason we do this is to leave space for the Spirit to work, for the Spirit to, to move in you. I read an article help, uh, that was really helpful about the Holy Spirit this past week, and I just wanted to read a couple quotes from it for kind of why we do this time of reflection. Now, if you hear a sermon, the question is, what will you do? We likely can resonate with Richard Sibbs. He's this Puritan that, he, that this guy was kind of writing about specifically when he says, how many holy motions are kindled in hearing the word and receiving the sacraments, etc., which die as soon as they are kindled for lack of resolution. Sermon over, we leave the gathering, get caught in the current of the day, and forget what we felt. And then he points to James chapter 1 where we want to be doers of the word and not just hearers. He goes on to say, the Spirit has invited us to enjoy more of his presence and power, and by our actions, we have silently said no. Sibs writes, when the Spirit suggests good motions, turn them presently into holy resolutions. Is this my duty and that which tends to my comfort? Certainly I will do it. Let not these motions die in us. Sermon over, we leave the gathering and perhaps tell a trusted friend what we felt, discerning if the motion was truly spiritual. So when we have this time each week, let's turn to what the Spirit is doing in us and make holy resolutions. Maybe we need to do something. Maybe we need to grow in our knowledge in some way, specifically our knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we just need to worship because the good news is so good. So let us not say no. Let us think and let us pray on what the Lord is doing in you. And I pray that we would do that for the weeks, months, years ahead to reflect truly on what the Lord is teaching us through his word. Apply it and go and live accordingly. Let's pray.
God, we are humbled by the opportunity tonight to, to just read your word, to study it, to dive into to so many passages. I pray that you have given strength and endurance and perseverance to um, these lovely men and women uh, that have, have sat under uh, my teaching. Father, I pray that you would work in us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, you dwell in us if we are found in Christ. The Spirit is here right now, moving and working, shaping hearts, drawing people to yourself. God, I pray if there's anyone in here that does not know you, maybe they're being prompted by the Spirit tonight to turn from their sin, to repent, and to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that you would draw him or her. I pray that he or she would be willing to, to talk with a, the person sitting near them or come talk to me or, or talk to maybe even a total stranger about what you are doing in them. And Lord, I pray that our members, that we would be open to the work of the Spirit in our hearts, that, that anyone in here who is walking with you, Lord, I pray that we would be abiding in the truth of your word and that when we read, when we study, we would let the spirit move and shape us. Lord, we know that you are good and holy and worthy to be worshiped. Father, I pray in these next few minutes as we consider what we've talked about, I pray we would make holy resolutions that would bring honor and glory to your name. We thank you for the gift of being able to gather as the church of your station. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.